I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome again to another edition of I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. Today, we are joined by the author Lee Weiner. Is it Weiner or Weiner, Lee? I forgot to ask you. Is it like it's a definitely Weiner. Weiner. I was going to say, it's not like a hot dog, is it? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He has a new autobiography out called Conspiracy to Riot. It's the life and times of one of the Chicago Seven, and you can figure out exactly what that means. It is out now for from Belt Publishing. And as you can hear in the background, Lee is joining us via FaceTime from Florida. Lee, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. Lee, I kind of want to start off with, you know, some of the basics for some of our listeners who who might not be super familiar with, you know, the history of 1968 and what you guys went through. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about how you ended up going on trial? what that trial was and, and why the Chicago 7 became, you know, I think in your own words, really a touchstone to explain and understand what happened in politics in the 1960s. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> minute, give me a minute or two. Sure. <laughs> uh, so there was this thing called the Civil Rights Movement <laughs> in starting the South. Um, may or may not have heard about it. Um, and we are in Trump's America, Lee. You know, some of this stuff is, you know, not necessarily at the forefront of people's fingers. No, I got it. I understand. I'm making a joke. Um, look, there was in the 60s, there was a, a growing and emergent and growing effort to secure a broader base of civil rights and, and fight racism. Um, and, uh, try to confront the disparities in American economy um, and the war in Vietnam. Those things kind of moved together and emerged into a relatively large movement of people across the country. Um, as part of that movement, part of that effort, um, there were demonstrations called against the war and against the demeaning culture uh, in Chicago in 1968, Democratic Convention. Um, I knew a bunch of the people. They asked for help. I helped. Um, this is actually a great time to do this interview. We had the Democratic Convention, although a much different one than you experienced last night and tonight. So. I actually noticed that. Um, I, I kept on hoping they would do a little memory shot, um, but they didn't. Um, but so that the, the mayor of Chicago, uh, Richard Daly, um, kind of felt it was his city um, for very good reason, because mostly it was. Um, it, he shared it with organized crime and corporate cultures and white racists and all kinds of wonderful people like that. But basically it was his city. Um, and when Martin Luther King was assassinated um, in 68, um, there were, uh, it was a, there was an uprising, um, a riot in Chicago. And the mayor, after it was coming down, the mayor said to his folks, Okay, shoot the looters um, and uh, shoot to wound 
um, the arsonists. Maybe it was the other way around. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Scared Arsonists scared. shoot to kill. Yeah. So it was, it, was, it was so that the efforts to bring thousands and thousands of people to Chicago in 1968 to protest the Democrats and against the war um, was inhibited. People got frightened, but there were nevertheless thousands and thousands of people did show up. And uh, the mayor used his police force in a very personal and direct way uh, to smash the out of people in the streets to prove to uh, America and to, to the people on the streets that they belonged to him, not the people on the streets. And you had an interesting role because you were a social worker. Um, and, of course, you were <laughs> surrounded by uh, people who were nationally known. You know, Abby Hoffman uh, was was a national figure at the time. You, however, were a, a Chicago native. You were working in the city. Um, you were somebody that grew up uh, on the south side of the city. How did you get so enmeshed and and part of this legendary trial? <laughs> My mother said that I had bad friends. Um, the look, I was a foot soldier in a war against poverty, racism, and against the war. Um, I worked in Chicago as a community organizer for years, um, you know, in, in what I had in the neighborhood had, had been then dominated by the community green public housing projects. Um, I was, I mean, yeah, I was a social worker, but probably not the kind that people think of. Um, I was kind of a tough ass. Um, and I had friends. Jerry Rubin was a longtime friend. Through him, I had met Abby. I knew Rennie Davis uh, and Tom from their work as organizers and working with SDS. So, I mean, it was like they were friends. And we were certainly committed together to do something against the war and against a demeaning culture. So I was on the streets. Because I was on the streets, because I knew Chicago, I had a relatively active role black bandana around my forehead, uh, scraggly beard, much darker than the one I have now, um, and help people survive on the streets. I did want to clarify one thing with Richard Daly. He did have a coalition of Hispanic and black voters, too. I, 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 there's this common misconception that just he only support, his only support was from white racists, and I, I don't agree with that statement. Oh, no, that's absolutely not true. I mean, you're... you're Correct. Um, look, Chicago then, more so than now, was really, um, when I grew up, I knew there, there were Republicans hiding somewhere, but certainly they weren't in my neighborhood um, on the South Side, and that there was a tremendously well-organized machine that secured people's votes and delivered services and jobs in relationship to loyalty Democratic Party. Uh, Daily, um, you're quite correct. It was not, uh, the city was not dominated uh, in its voting numbers by white racists. 
Um, they, there happened to be a lot of them in the police department, but what the hell? Um, well, the, the reason I brought it up is just because that's a common narrative now that Daly was just like this across the board racist, and it, it's simply not true. Oh, yeah, it is absolutely not true. You're absolutely correct. You know, I, just, I want to back up just a little bit, Lee, and, and talk about um, your growing up in Chicago. Most of our listeners are, are probably Chicago-based. And uh, you grew up in the South Shore neighborhood, uh, yep. mainly Jewish neighborhood, and uh, yep. spent a lot of time in back of the yards um, I actually worked in back of the yards until until recently. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up, what it was like, what uh, just what the oh, general sh- atmosphere was like, oh, and, and, sure. and, and and your parents as well? Because there's there's an interesting thing where you talk about how you grew up and what you guys talked about. So, so okay, so so here's how I grew up. Back in those days, South Shore where I lived was like on 74th and Colfax. Uh, so that we were just barely on the right side of the IC tracks. Um, there was a coal yard. My, our place was like three flats uh, linked you know, together, six, six, six apartments linked to others. There was a coal yard in our backyard, and then it was the IC tracks and four sketchy blocks, uh, Rainbow Beach down at uh, the lake. Uh, it was uh, essentially a working class, lower middle class neighborhood. Uh, it was great. Um, I never thought that I was growing up in a weird way. Uh, it turns out that I was kind of way like my, my father, um, was a painting contractor, which, and in Chicago back in those days, the painters union was very early mobbed up. And so that he had friends and connections to, uh, people who organized crime. My mother and her friends from the University of Chicago uh, and were included people who were close to and in the uh, Communist Party. And so when I was, as I was growing up, um, I, I had a bedroom, uh, kind of like an enclosed porch that had been redone, so I slept in it. And there were windows onto the dining room where my parents' friends and cousins played poker, maybe every month, once a month, maybe every other month. And so some, sometimes those poker games were dominated by my father and his friends. And I learned about how difficult it was to, turn, to lay off bets on the weekend and uh, who what neighborhood lawyer was close to people who were mobbed up. Um, where you could get things a little cheaper than you might be able to get them in stores, and how to take care of small things that the city was giving you a problem with. But, you know, that was that set of conversations. My mother's friends and, and cousins, uh, different, different weeks, different months, was a different set of conversations. I learned about Zionism, Trotsky, Lenin, um, union organizing, um, and that some of my mother's friends um, effectively, actively worked to change America. And, and Chicago, with its mix of uh, Mexican, black, white, poor, and ethnic uh, communities, um, factories, uh, the railroads, Proximity of wealth and, and poverty were fertile ground for Communist Party organizing. 
And that was part. So I was getting lessons on how to be Jew, essentially. <laughs> uh, and that included um, strange stories about um, Yates, Sid Yates, Sid Yates? Uh, old congressman, a liberal congressman from Chicago. But I knew that from my father, I knew that his, it's Yates' father-in-law's pickle trucks were used in the prohibition, during prohibition to carry liquor. So I got this strange combination of perspectives on Chicago and how to grow up and, and you could be um, mobbed up or you could be a commie and both were perfectly reasonable ways of being a grown up. Um, Sounds amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got the outside the box education. Yeah. yeah. yeah it, it was weird. Um, I know it was weird. I mean, I thought everybody's parents taught, told their kids unintentionally stories about why some of their friends were no longer working in the unions and no longer were teaching in the schools. I thought that, I mean, not everybody had those stories. I thought everybody was a little mobbed up. Um, I mean, I did. I mean, I just, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, um, <laughs> so, so I grew up weird. Yeah, I mean, I find it less weird than just fascinating. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's a very different time, and I, I actually just to back up and talk about it a little bit because I don't think our listeners today, the intersection of Zionism and communism is a really interesting one in that period. Can you can you drill down a little bit on that and talk about it because I, I don't think our readers, uh, sorry, our listeners. Um, might not know the background between the American Zionist movement, what Israel was going through at that point, and why communism was an attractive ideology there. <laughs> Look, um, Jews, for a variety of reasons, um, were active in a number of revolutionary movements, particularly in Russia. Uh, they split up. Uh, into various camps. So there were Bundists who thought that you could organize Jewish workers as part of Jewish nationalist movement within a larger revolutionary framework in Russia. Uh, there were Zionists who thought that made no sense ever, sorry, um, that they would have to um, leave and go to Palestine and help establish a, a, a socialist Jewish state, um, homeland. Um, the, there were other folks, um, Leon Trotsky. I mean, it was like, you know, so look, when I was going to, to college at the University of Illinois downstate, um, we used to sit around, my friends and I, um, and we'd find the actual Jewish names of all these people who were involved in the uh, communist revolution in Russia uh, and amazed and happy that it was part of our upbringing, part of our cultural heritage, our, the notion of repairing the world. Um, Zionism was one way of expressing that, there were lots of others. You could stay and fight where you were for a better world. 
um, or you, and and those streams of Jewish thought, Jewish political thought, uh, were very real to me, all of them, because there were people that I, adults, my family's friends, cousins, family, represent, were, people, were part of each one of those, there was representatives from every one of those camps. So I heard it all. Um, what it meant was that in 1960, when I was in college, uh, walking around, if my friends and I would feel bad that we had missed the ability to fight the fascists, we had missed the ability to help grow the unions, um, that we didn't realize that in a few years that we'd missed the revolution. In a few years, of course, we'd be the revolution. We didn't understand that. We didn't know that. It was kind of joyful to find that out. Um, that's a weird roundabout way of answering your question. Perhaps I didn't answer it at all. I apologize if I did not. No, I think you nailed it. Yeah, I think it's good. You know, what we should do is, since we, we actually haven't talked about your book yet, Lee, let's play a segment from it. As always, we want to thank uh, Shanna Van Volt, our reader, and today we want to thank the band Antiloper, which is led by Jamie Branch. She is the trumpeter. So we're going to hear a segment, uh, Lee, from your book, in fact, detailing kind of the start of the trial you faced. When we come back, we'll be talking more with the author, Lee Weiner. He's, excuse me, Lee Weiner. Uh, he's written the book Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. It's out now from Belt Publishing, and we'll be right back. The trial would be noisy. It was all about the war in Vietnam, drugs, racism, violence on the streets of Chicago, music, politics, sex, revolution, undercover police agents, the First Amendment, wiretaps, and poetry. It was overseen by a nasty, mean-spirited, easy-caricatured judge whose favoritism for the government and prosecution would have been laughable if he hadn't had so much power over our lives. We openly mocked him, fighting and ignoring him day after day in his courtroom and in press conferences and speeches we gave all over the country. The newspapers loved it. We were about as famous as you could be before the internet, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. None of us had any illusions about what the trial was about. It wasn't about finding who was right and who was wrong on the streets. It was about high-minded principles like protecting constitutional rights to free speech. We all understood that the trial was just a more complicated and time-consuming continuation of the state's organized use of power and violence against dissent that had been used in Chicago during the summer of 1968. Long before that summer, we had all experienced the ways that the government used its authorities, rules, laws, threats, and police to prevent our efforts to end racism, fight poverty, end the war, and establish a freer and more equitable America. We'd all been in jail. We'd all chosen to live in opposition to the dominant politics and values of our country. The trial was another battle in what had become a war between a government that was defending itself, its economic power, and its dominant, oppressive culture against the changes we all believed would lead to a different and better future. For us, the only question about the trial was how we could most effectively fight back. On the morning of September 23rd, we were in the federal courthouse in the loop off Jackson and Dearborn. We were all on the 23rd floor in a large, two-story high, wood-paneled room under front-to-back, wall-to-wall fluorescent ceiling lights that created what Abby described best as a neon oven. Sitting around the defendant's table with our lawyers were the eight of us who had deliberately, in defiance and with snide humor directed at the government charges, branded ourselves the conspiracy. We announced it loudly, repeatedly inviting everyone to join us. The four defendants with somewhat shorter hair, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, David Dellinger, and John Freund's, 
had known each other for what seemed like forever, several from the very earliest years of the efforts by the Students for a Democratic Society to support civil rights and change America for the better. Tom, Rennie, and Dave had worked hard together all against the war. All three had already visited North Vietnam. A little to one side of that trio, but close, with John Freund, who had worked with Tom in the early SDS community organizing efforts. Tom Hayden looked just like who he was, a bit lanky, black Irish, like someone who maybe had a future lurking out there where he'd become a bit of a drinker. But in those days, he was hard-edged, intense, and always fully engaged with whatever he had personally decided was serious work that needed to be done. I hadn't much cared for Tom when I briefly met him years before at the SDS National Headquarters on 63rd Street in Chicago. Tom grew up Catholic in a suburb outside of Detroit, and he had gone to the parish school run by Father Coughlin, the anti-Semitic radio priest. It seemed to me Tom still carried at least a hint of the past with him. Lots of people said I was wrong about him, on the other hand. I wasn't the only one who cringed at that small biographical detail. But more relevantly, and worse in my opinion, was Tom's certainty that he was right, that he knew what was best for other people. That certainty might cloud over for a bit sometimes. Its edges might soften due to stress, exhaustion, too many political alternatives to choose from, or honest desperation for some other kind of life, perhaps one with political work on a less grandiose scale, and with more room for private joys. But it was still there. Okay, Lee, we just heard that segment. You're, you're describing the trial, uh, and it, it seems, even at this remove, very strange and kind of surreal. Uh, <laughs> Jamie, maybe we should go into what led up to the trial. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to kind of start there, but I mean, the whole thing, you know, even it's been 50 years, you know, it, it still has this kind of air of unreality around it. Can you talk a little bit about, first of all, why you were put on trial in the first place, which still to this day seems kind of unbelievable to me? Hey, Lee, can I ask you a quick question? Did you get to see cool. the M MC5 at the convention? I mean, I'm sorry, what? Did you get to see the MC5 down at the convention at the, oh. at the lake? Yeah, from in the park. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Mike and I are both from the Detroit area, so huge MC5 fans. Oh, I had, yeah. had to ask. Fantastic. The only band that had the balls to show up. Yes, that's right, and then they were chased off, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, weren't we all? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Look, the trial—the trial was no more. It was no weirder than um, the trial that occurred, like last year, um, for the J two hundred. You know that, that when people were demonstrating on the streets against the inauguration of Trump, the government accused those people as conspiracy to riot in the same way that 50 years earlier, uh, the government came down on me and my friends in terms of conspiracy to riot. It wasn't, why did I get indicted? Excellent question. Uh, there's three answers. Answer one, I had extraordinarily long hair, a very long beard. I was still connected to Northwestern University and could represent in the, in the government's eyes one part of the world that was attacking them and that they could attack back. So this wild-haired students. So I kind of got to be representative of that group. Um, so that's one reason. The other reason was that um, I was accused of teaching and demonstrating the use of incendiary devices to disrupt interstate traffic. 
I always thought that was a fantastically great charge. Um, but by having that tasking, that doing thing, everybody else's charges were involved in speaking. So that uh, people used to say that, well, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, what your, yours and John's um, hits, it would have been all First Amendment violations. And so they maybe even a, a tame federal grand jury would not, not have indicted everybody. So, so they kind of like, those are the reasons. Um, as somebody, as, as some police commander said during the trial about, well, we've known about Lee Winter for a long time. Well, yeah. Um, he used to get arrested. You know, you don't you don't dump rats and roaches into the reflecting pool by the Picasso statue to uh, raise the issue of slum landlords and not expect to get arrested. Um, so uh, when we used to think about who would be indicted, I never my name was never mentioned. Um, but you know, we forgot, we didn't think of ourselves as representing anybody. We were just ourselves, but that's not how the Republican administration thought about it. They picked categories of people to be represented in being on the trial. Getting at what, what Jamie, I think was talking about the, the, the trial itself being somewhat of a circus. There, there are some passages in your book where you describe artists, poets, uh, singers, yeah. I think you were describing them being in the court? Yes, sure. Reading their poetry? Sure. Were they on the stand reading their poetry? Sure. Um, uh, Alan, Alan Ginsberg, uh, was terrific on the stand. Um, the judge would often flip out, um, you know, get really angry because we would speak from our, the defense table. I mean, if something was going crazy, we would say, hey, Nuts. Oh, sorry, it's crazy. Um, and at one point, while, while Alan was testifying, um, he, they, he actually, to condemn him, to, 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 to make him seem less as a normal human being, uh, the prosecutors had Alan read one of his poems, which was about a wet dream. Um, because Alan was this big, bushy-haired, wonderful, loving, very gay um, poet. And at one point, the judge flipped out, and Alan leaned forward towards the judge and started um, doing a, a Tibetan Buddhist chant to calm him down. Um, um, it was pretty freaky. Um, there, you know, so yeah, there were there, there were folk singers that were called up uh, to this to, on a, to, to to talk about Chicago, and sure enough, they tried to sing. You know, why not? Um, we were trying to present to the jury what happened in Chicago from our perspective, and so yeah, there were artists. Uh, Larry Rivers uh, was there, a bunch of other people. Larry Rivers was there because I remember Larry because. He did this great sketch of Artie Seal, who's um, Bobby's wife and child. Uh, um, 
And the woman I was then living with was an art historian or an art, art major from the University you know, the Art Institute. And so here's Larry Rivers doing this pencil sketch. And she just freaked because she knew how valuable it was. And so she told Artie, you know, take care of it because you know, it's really going to be valuable. And so Artie just, <laughs> just crushed it up and pushed it in her purse. Um, but, you know. Um, you know, you mentioned Bobby Seal. We should, we should clarify for uh, listeners. Well, I also wanted to. Well, I was just going to say the title is is The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. Originally, it was The Conspiracy of Eight, and Bobby Seale was separated from the rest of the defendants, and it became The Chicago Seven. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was one of the the uh, images of the trial that stand out most for me is that, you know, they had Seale chained. Oh, and yeah. His, and, his, oh. and his mouth taped shut. Like, I mean, today, people, I mean, that's such a violation i mean it was a violation of your rights back then but that image to me is like one but, thing that stands out the most from that yeah. trial no no cameras in the courtroom right well but yeah but there are there were people who who drew it and those pictures look we were we were like the weather we hit the national news in those days um we were famous but we're, there was there was no facebook twitter uh, the internet didn't exist. We were about as famous as you could necessarily be when there were three television networks dominating the news and distribution of news and newspapers, maybe 10, 15 newspapers in the United States. So every night they would show drawings uh, from the trial. Um, we also had press conferences in the afternoon. Um, and sometimes they showed that as well. Bobby's, Bobby was brave and righteous, strong, and demanded his constitutional rights in that trial, which the judge denied him. Um, and Bobby would not shut up. He would not accede to the formalities, uh, expectations in a trial. Those formalities, those expectations in a trial place a defendant or defendants in this case, the eight of us, as a quiet observers of a lynching party um, aimed towards us. So we were not, we were not kids. We were not, we were not adults. Um, worried about our everyday lives. We didn't have jobs. Uh, John Freund, one of the defendants, uh, was an instructor at a university, I think, in those days. And that was about as close to a real world job as any of us had. Um, the rest of us were marginal. We're in a world of politics, where some people were supported by poorly paid jobs that allowed them to do their, continue their work against the war. Uh, other people wrote books, paid speeches at universities. We were, what they put us on trial for, which was conspiracy and speech and bad actions. Um, we brought those skills into the courtroom and we used them there. Um, and after a period of time, month, month and a half, the judge 
finally uh, tried to stop Bobby from speaking out. At first, they tried chains and gags. Uh, it didn't really work. Um, and ultimately, he separated Bobby from the trial, and we became known as Chicago 7. So that's... What that's happened a, to Bobby with the trial? Well, Bobby was in the trial or afterwards. Uh, after, what did the judge decide? I mean, they removed him. And oh, it was a mistrial. It was a mistrial. Oh, and they, 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 they gave, gave him four years on contempt. He gave him something like four years of, of charges of conspiracy, but he was whisked away to Connecticut where he was on going to be going on trial for um, uh, conspiracy to murder. Okay. I don't we think need, we've we mentioned it. We need to take it. a break here, okay. actually, because uh, we need to make sure that we thank the folks that make this station possible. Uh, after the break, we're actually going to return with another reading from Lee's book. And we are speaking with uh, Lee Weiner. He is the author of Conspiracy to Riot. It is the life and times of one of the Chicago Seven. It's out now from Belt Books. We'll be right back after this short break. <laughs> And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. The trial of the Chicago 7, or the Chicago 8 conspiracy, wasn't anywhere near the first time the government had to use its prosecutors and courts to punish political dissent on the left. The mobilization of local and federal authorities, state-sanctioned violence, police, laws, and the formal and time-consuming procedures of the court were all weapons that had regularly been used to threaten, attack and coerce individuals and organizations who opposed existing arrangements of government and economic power. But our trial caused a bigger stir than most. In part, that might have been an accident of timing and the misplaced enthusiasm of newly elected Republicans who were determined to act as quickly as they could against their perceived enemies. So the trial was rushed into being, and it ended up almost perfectly placed in the middle of a rapidly growing, near-cresting wave of distrust towards the government, public anger about the continuing war, and broadly felt, if not clearly articulated, yearning for something better. It was all very much a part of the 60s, which was a time that's hard to describe, even for people who lived through them. No single book, article, blog post, or even hours of music, video, and interviews have been able to adequately sum up the 60s. They can't. For example, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's 10-part TV series on the Vietnam War was 18 hours long and it still generated plenty of legitimate criticism about what was missed and what was glossed over, and that film was just about the war. Vietnam was certainly a significant part of the context surrounding all our lives, but it wasn't everything, not everything by quite a bit. The failure to satisfactorily grab an intellectual and emotional hold of the 60s can partly be blamed on the simple fact that there was so much going on. If you Google the 60s, you get more than 96 million hits, do the same for the 70s and 80s, and you get 49 million and 44 million, respectively. And when people say the 60s, it's not always even clear what years they're actually referring to. Did the 60s start with Kennedy's election in 1960? Maybe with the Greensboro sit-ins that started much earlier that same year. The Montgomery bus boycott began in 1955. Surely that was the start of something. In his book on the 60s, Tom Brokaw claims they start with the 1963 March on Washington and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. But then when did the 60s end? Was it 1970 when National Guard troops killed students at Kent State University and then 10 days later, Mississippi police officers killed students at Jackson State? Or maybe the 60s ended with the 1972 electoral defeat of McGovern and Nixon's re-election. I don't really think the exact date parameters are important. After all, they were part of what hints at what was to come before the actual year of 1960 even got started. 
and the whirlwind of change and noise from those years didn't fully settle down even after Nixon made his getaway from the Watergate mess by boarding a helicopter on the White House lawn in 1974, a forced smile on his face and his arms raised high with the two-handed B sign. To understand that time, and especially its continuing impact on politics in America today, I think you have to start with the children who grew up in the 50s, children who heard family stories that often made them unintentional heirs of some of the remnants of the radical politics of the 30s and 40s. Red Diaper Babies was the derogatory, dismissive, and sometimes fearsome label that some observers used to describe these children. But as my own story suggests, it was much broader than that. Many more people, besides just the kids of actual Communist Party members, learned from their families that politics was a separate but real thing, and that it had once and might again influence people's lives. We were all living in places that were richer and that seemed freer. It was a world filled with more cars, TVs, and opportunities to learn and try new things without necessarily terrible consequences. And we are back here at I-94. We are speaking with the author Lee Weiner, the author of Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. He was a defendant of the Chicago Seven. And just uh, before the break, and in fact that reading is from Chapter 6 of Lee's book, uh, we were talking about the case of Bobby Seale. He, of course, was taken to Connecticut where he faces charges of, of murder. But you guys then were reduced to the the, the famous Chicago 7, as we were kind of talking about before the break. Um, you guys were not playing along with what seemed to be an establish, establishment narrative. Uh, I, I think you make it very clear in your book that you felt that you were being put on trial um, to stand in for a bunch of people that the government considered... Uh, to be a threat to their power. Uh, and it's very interesting, you know, we're 50 years on from 1968. Uh, the Democratic Convention obviously is happening as we tape this show. It will be continuing, in fact, when this show first airs. Uh, and we are in a very similar uh, time period, again, perhaps without an international war in Indochina. But uh, there is a huge protest movement going on right now in America. Uh, there is a great deal of, of uh, anger uh, toward the federal government. Can you talk about maybe some of the parallels you see between your time, what you lived through back then, and, and what's going on now? Sure. I'll tell you, first, I'll start with a charming story. I got a chance to talk to one of my sons, and we compared. He's in, he lives in Portland, and we were able to make talk comparisons between the gas that I got hit, we got hit with in Chicago in 68 and the gas they're using in Portland now. <laughs> so it's kind of like... Uh, which one was strange. worse? Yeah, which one was worse? <laughs> Portland, I think. Um, it, the, the stuff they're using in Portland um, it is not easy. It, it, it dries on you. Um, and so it's, a, it's different. Um, at least, you know, I haven't been in Portland. I had my... my I had to depend on my kid, um, and you know, I, I believe I proudly proclaim that. Yeah, yeah, but you're you know, that that's that gas. Mine was really gas. I mean, you know, the government, the public use of state power to repress and punish people who dissent, people who want something better people who are opposed to the continuation of racism, 
who think that societal denigration of gender roles, expect gender roles, people who support um, a capitalist economy that rewards wealth and protects the re retention of that wealth. Um, people who want something better, who want something different, um, are going to have to become active. They have to learn to be political. And very, very happily, with great joy, I see people who were learning to be political much faster than my friends and I did. For us, it took, it took a while. But now the images of hurt and killings of innocent adults and children um, are, are, are viewable, seeable, unavoidable. And so people have learned that that's politics, that, that, that acting politically is the only way you're going to be able to make some changes in that, in that ugliness and end some of that hurt. You know, we're talking about uh, parallels, things that have, have changed in the protest movement, things that haven't. There's a moment in, um, in the book where you, you're talking about being on trial, and you, everyone, I think, except Bobby, was, was out on bond. During yes. the trial, yeah, for most for most, but not for, all, not all of it. Right toward the end, some someone else was went in. I forget who, but uh, you were you were making speeches. Uh, most of all, you were making speeches all the time, all around the country. All the time, and everywhere. You had an opportunity to speak to uh, to an LGBTQ crowd about the similarities between the civil rights struggle and, and their struggle. I and, I, and I yes. remember Tom Tom Hayden opposed it. Well, okay, so here's, here's what happened. So, like, well, but before you get into it, Lee, um, at the end of it, can you, can you talk about if there's still that same um, disparity between movements today? Yeah, okay, I will. Um, okay, so look, um, Stonewall happened in 69 uh, before the trial started, and several gay friends of mine asked whether I would speak at a rally. Uh, that they were organizing in Chicago and talk about the similarities between their struggle and everything else that the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement was all about. And of course I, I, of course I said, sure. Um, Tom, this is right before the trial started, it was 1969, and not everybody recognized Stonewall as the political act that it was. Um, Tom People did not understand, I don't want to just knock Tom, he's not alone in this, um, didn't understand that the languages we used, the words we used, condemning um, the world as it existed, and its expectations uh, would be broadened. Originally those words were designed to reach university students and members of the black community. But there were other people whose senses of identity were core to who they were, and they shared those identities. Sometimes it was, it was gender, sometimes it was sexual orientation. Um, so that 
in those days, there was not a lot of, there was resistance to um, granting the, um, the glory of being a legitimate political uh, movement for progressive change. Um, Lee, did Stonewall, I mean, I was too young to really remember that Stonewall happened, you know, and I was a little kid. Did that make national news? And, and were people yes. talking about that? Okay. Yes. Yes. It, yes, it did. And yes, it, yes, they did. <laughs> Look, it was, it was fantastic. Um, I mean, it was, it was just When I, in those days, living up, leading up to the trial, um, things sometimes got really, really unpleasant. Um, you meet with lawyers, you talk constantly about all this crap. Um, and one of the refuges I had was a gay collective um, uh, off of Lincoln Park, um, so that... Um, those men were welcoming, supportive, and friends. And their struggle was, I saw it, their struggle was no different than the, in the black community that I work as an organizer. They were fighting uh, against uh, repression, um, a lack of dignity, a lack of recognition for who they were, and an active efforts by the society to denigrate them and keep them down. Same thing, do racism. You, do you think Tom saw it as an insult to the civil rights movement in that uh, the community didn't face the, the historic struggle that African Americans had? I think that's how Tom felt then. Um, Tom had worked in the South. And had had and kept the civil rights movement as a very very shiny and important object in his life, and so I think that he, at those days, he was reluctant to accede the equal legitimacy to the LGBTQ movement. But you know, he learned as many other people did. We're almost out of time, Lee, but I wanted to ask you this before we close. You know, I hear a lot of these protesters, these kids today, and they're saying things like nothing's ever changed and, uh, you know, nothing's happened since the civil rights movement. What do you say to the young people that are out there right now? And uh, first of all, what do you see that has changed and how would you motivate them? <laughs> Look, first of all, things have changed. Things have gotten a little better. Not like they're settled. It's not like it's completely done. It's not like anything thing about the women's movement, uh, LGBTQ movement. Um, it, it, there has, in fact, been um, some moderation in some of the ugliness, not enough. And some of it is still vulnerable to setbacks, as we're experiencing now. Then, as now, people have to work together, move together, act together, and resist. 
abuse of power. You know, one other thing I wanted to sneak into is whether or not you kept up correspondence with with any of your co-defendants over the years. Well, some, of, some of them are dead. Now, uh, but the, one, the ones who are not dead. <laughs> <laughs> or afterlife communication, whatever you're, yeah, I mean, whatever if you're, you're about. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah. yeah, actually, you know, I keep more, I actually am more in touch with Abs and Jerry than I am with um, uh, John Freund's. Um, so that's he, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, he's talking Yes, yes. Um, so, well, yeah, no, I mean, I, Rennie, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't talked with Rennie and, and, John, um, in a long time, um, Bobby and I exchanged some email a while ago. Um, so yeah, we were, we were, we weren't really, we were brought together. Some of us were friends. Some of us had worked, others of us had worked, some of us worked together for years. Um, but they were, there were differences between us. My, and after the trial, uh, I think the last time we were all together, I guess twice, once was for Bobby during his trial in Connecticut, where we were wild and crazed. And another time after the first movie that was made about the trial, um, we all went to Florida, went to, I'm sorry, not Florida, we all went to California uh, to, um, be on the set of the first movie. So that's something else. Um, well, I guess I guess the question is, do you feel like you guys went through the trial, not that it's completely one or the other, but is it more accurate to say that you guys went through it alone, as each individually, or that you guys went through it together as a unit? Oh, no, we went through it together. Oh, no, absolutely. During the trial, we were together. I mean, there were differences, of course. I talk about them in my book a little bit. I mean, there all of us have lived lives and continue to live lives in opposition to the dominant culture, capitalism, racism, um, sexism. Some of us were more successful in, in continuing to act that in, in those ways politically than others, but it's who we were. And it's who I hope people hope to be now. Um, that notion, that, that life, a political life, a life that's informed politically and includes active political work, is the best life. It's how you are your best self. Politics is not just about power. It's not just about punishment. It's about a place where you can act towards your best self and help people become their best self. With that, we always try to give the author the last word here, so we are going to close our program today with the final selection from Lee's book. We've been speaking with Lee Weiner. He is the author of, I guess what I should call an autobiography, Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. It's out now from Belt Publishing. Lee, thank you so much for spending Thanks, part Lee. of your day with Thanks, us. We Lee. really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Best wishes, and guys, we'll see you all next week on another edition of I-94. The most important lesson from the 60s in our trial that continues to resonate now is that people can and must resist a legitimate state power and they must help sustain a renewed political struggle for social and economic justice. It is part of how anyone becomes their best self, a responsible citizen and patriot. That was true for me, it is true for anyone. 
And while a political life isn't easy, and while frustration, anger, disappointment, fear, and confusion are sometimes pieces of it, I believe there is no more self-respecting, fulfilling life to try to lead. The joys and victories may not come as often as anyone might hope, but then when those victories arrive, well, I think of the transcendent moments in my life, seeing a near-perfect double rainbow off the rocky, barren Nova Scotia coast and pulling the car over just to watch and wonder, truly at rest, lying on my back with my naked sleeping lover's left legs blade across my own, her head turned to me and cradled in my left arm, her arm and breast pressed against my body. Two vivid and orange-black butterflies circling me, then so softly landing on my shoulder and arm, running alongside one of my young daughters, half holding a bike up, helping her balance, and then suddenly seeing her launch on her bicycle, riding away laughing with unexpected delight. And when people who are acting politically do have successes, they can take all of their own transcendent moments, mix them together, add joy with laughter, and share the moment with the closest of friends. That's what even small political victories will feel like. Does it make it all sound a little more enticing? It should. But even better, it's true. When people are ready to act politically, there is actually quite a bit they can do now. And they can do it pretty easily, without much risk to their reputation or fear of immediate physical harm or potentially devastating future personal consequences. These days, liking a certain group on Facebook, signing an online petition, or making a small monetary donation to a social justice or environmental activist organization is enough to start being political. If you do that, instead of being added to the FBI's list of subversives, the most likely result is that you'll receive a multicolored sticker to put on your car and the opportunity to buy a t-shirt online. And increasingly, people are being taught and encouraged to actively engage in electoral politics. They're learning how to more effectively influence their local representatives or elect someone new to a state legislative office or congress. And I agree it's hard to underestimate the political urgency that should push us all towards a stronger focus on local and national electoral politics. Putting in the time and effort to change the makeup of the House and the Senate is justified in the simple hope it will help slow down bad deeds and harmful laws. The kind of political work also offers a relatively cost-free opportunity for people to actually do things, to act with others and accomplish things that can indisputably be counted as political victories. It might even help point us in the direction of a better world. But it's important to remember there are limits to what might be accomplished, even under a more socially liberal and well-intended Congress, and that the electoral work doesn't delegitimize or exclude other kinds of political work. The efforts to fight income inequality, racism, corporate interests, abusive police and state power, and denigrating gender norms don't come with a predetermined end date that can tell you whether you've won or lost. That doesn't mean those fights shouldn't be fought, and nobody should be surprised if some of that slower and more prolonged work sometimes includes loud public displays of concern and anger. However, it's true that nonviolent demonstrations and actions, along with electoral work, provide people a low-cost, non-threatening way to edge away from being political bystanders or passive victim citizens. And one aspect of the 21st century capitalism and anti-democratic, sexist, racist, environmentally destructive ugliness is that they're often easy to act against because those forces are all over the place, very often right in people's neighborhoods. And they're all potential targets for politically inspired actions. There are ATMs and bank branches, international brand gas stations and real estate offices that are branches of national companies or investment firms. There are factories, offices, power plants and distribution networks that are affiliated with multinational corporations. There are the local offices of the two dominant political parties and elected officials. None of those places have a sign in front saying, Hi, I'm a local representative of globalization, capitalist exploitation, and your lack of power over your own lives. But they could.
I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Lee Weiner, author of Conspiracy to Riot, out now from Belt Publishing. This episode originally aired on August 20, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>